Good morning. Let's be honest, many of you here in the room are viewing this as a warming center, aren't you? It's just cheap heat for you. Thanks for coming. And uh, those of you online, you enjoy that uh, uh, throw blanket and coffee that you are enjoying there, and uh, thank you for joining us as well. Before I get into my message today, I, I want to just take a minute and talk with our church family about our tentative plans moving forward into the, into the spring and into the summer. You know, I'm happy to tell you that all of our campuses are experiencing increasing numbers of people that are returning back to in-person uh, worship. And that's, of course, great. We love to see uh, people, and the more we see, the, the better it is, as long as people are comfortable doing so. Uh, we continue to strive to love each other and to keep each other uh, safe and to respect other people's opinions on these things, as well as to follow the governor's guidelines for churches. And he has those, and we are seeking to uh, be uh, subject to uh, that leadership. And uh, currently, that includes the requirement to socially distance within our auditoriums. And so we, uh, we continue to do that. The problem with that is that it significantly limits our seating capacities in our auditoriums. And so we have more inflow coming back, but with a, uh, a smaller capacity, much smaller than, than, our, than the seating capacity. So what are we going to do? Well, here, here are our plans, and if anything we've learned this year is all plans need to be in pencil, okay? But as best we can say, in pencil, here are our plans that... You know, unless uh, that guideline changes uh, for the foreseeable future, we're going to uh, continue to need to do this in-person social distance thing. And so, in order to uh, meet the growing capacity needs, our plan is that we are going to be adding services and adding venues. Uh, so, for example, one space that we are going to begin in two weeks uh, is a space we're going to call the venue. Uh, which is our student ministry center, which we are equipping and outfitting basically to be a fully functioning venue. And in two weeks, we're going to be offering a live worship uh, experience and a streamed sermon in that, in that space. Now, uh, and that'll be for both services, 9 o'clock and 1045. So this will be a smaller sort of setting, uh, more intimate. Some of you might, uh, might prefer that anyway. Uh, it's going to be a more acoustic type uh, worship, and all of you will enjoy the refreshments that we will be providing for those of you that attend the venue. That is not a bribe. That is just uh, eating and drinking to the glory of God, okay? So bear that in mind. Uh, but that starts in two weeks, okay? So adding services and adding spaces is our plan, uh, and we're hoping that we can get to the warmer temperatures, and on a day like today, it seems like it's never going to happen, but maybe 10 weeks or so, 10 Sundays, we will be in a place where we can add um, outdoor services again. And the great thing about the outdoor is that we can uh, double, even triple our capacity outside versus what we can do uh, inside. We'll probably still have the inside, have the outside. Again, the, the vision here is just uh, we keep adding and uh, do what we can. And our plan is to, yes, grill out afterwards. That is also not a bribe. <laughs> no, not at all. That is eating and drinking to the glory of God, just to be clear. So uh, I just want to say thank you for flexing with us. As we as a, as a church try to flex with the governing authorities that are over us, as Scripture calls us to do, while going forward with gospel ministry. And I, I just want to say we remain very encouraged by... Uh, both the in-person and the online um, uh, attendance, if you will. In fact, if you add those two together, our attendances right now are larger and stronger than in any period in our entire church's history, which is a, a real encouragement to us. And we hope that that continues. Somebody wanted to clap on that? Okay, that's good. Okay, let's clap really loud together so that the people online hear that. You ready? One, two, three. Okay. Did you hear that online, or, or were you sipping your coffee uh, as we did that? So uh, that said, though, I'll be honest, we can't wait to see everybody together again. 
that's going to be really great. And that day, uh, that day is coming. Okay, so there's our go forward plan in pencil, and we'll see what uh, God has for us. All right, let's get into our our, uh, message today. And after a month of messages on the Gospelized family, today we're back in our exposition of Romans. And actually, this marks three years that we have been working our way through this glorious book. And I'm, I'm happy to tell you we're in the home stretch now. I've got a teaching schedule that wraps up Romans uh, sometime in May, and so that'll be, uh, that'll be great to put a period on, on, this, on this book. Now, over the, over the years, I have done many a review of, of Romans, and I'm not, for the sake of time today, I'm not going to do that other than to highlight the theme verse of Romans. Paul, we call it verse 16, he's just writing a letter, but early on, he basically gives his reason and purpose for writing the letter. And this is verse 16, Romans 1.16. He says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Now, we often stop there and think, isn't it great that it's the power of God unto salvation, and amen and amen. But he adds this, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, or also to the, to the Gentile. And as we've gone through Romans, we've, we've seen over and over again, especially chapter 11, that a huge reason that Paul writes the letter to this Roman church is that in the Roman church, you had these two very distinct groups that were not getting along. You had the, uh, the, the Jewish Christians who come out of Old Testament Judaism and practice that all, those, all their life. Now they're, you know, they're, they're Messianic Jews, they're following Jesus, but they have all of that perspective. And then you had this other group who, you know, they couldn't quote a single verse from the Old Testament. They had lived as total pagans in Rome and, you know, worshiped at the temples and, and you know, ate whatever they wanted, drank whatever they wanted, and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And these two groups now are, are both in the same local congregation. And we can surmise from what Paul writes that there were some pretty sharp disagreements going on there, that they were not getting along. There was tons of self-righteousness and condescension towards people that disagreed with them. And over and over, what Paul emphasizes is you need to love each other. You need to set aside these secondary differences. You know, you can have your perspective, but don't let that keep you from loving and serving one another. Paul, why is this so important? Why not just allow the ethnic racial disparities to, to divide the church? In fact, let, let them go off in their own sort of directions and, and then everybody can be with the people that they like and do things the way that they like and don't have to you know, sort of love, bridge to people that are different, look different, think different, you know, maybe have some different beliefs on secondary issues. Why not just let it go? And Paul now answers the question of why unity across these racial, lifestyle, even religious tradition differences is so critical. Why go to the trouble? Our text today is Romans 15, verse 7. We're beginning in verse 7. Here is what he writes. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Super key verse right there. We're going to come back to it. For I tell you, now he explains why. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said... Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord. Notice these are quotations here. He's quoting Old Testament passages. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May God bless his holy word to his people today. Now verse seven. Verse seven is one of these mountain peak verses. Like if you think through Romans, uh, you know, Romans 1.16, I already quoted that. You know, maybe famous Romans 3.23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. You know, uh, Romans 5.1, uh, therefore we have peace through, uh, with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Romans 8.1, no condemnation for those that are in Christ. End of Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God is in Christ Jesus. There's like, you know, Romans has probably, I don't know, a third of the top 20 verses in all the Bible. You know, they stand out. Some people in the past called it the Romans Road. You know, these verses in Romans that you gotta know and understand. This verse, I'm convinced, having preached for three years in Romans, Paul would say, is one of the key takeaway verses. Verse seven, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What's the word that's repeated twice? Welcome. Greek lexicon says it means this, to genuinely receive someone into your fellowship and into your heart. Let me say that again. To genuinely receive someone into your fellowship and into your, into your heart. We're not talking about fakey kind of thing. We're not talking Minnesota nice. You know, we're, we're talking about the real thing where we are receiving somebody into our affections and genuinely loving them as a fellow Christian. The opposite of this is to shun, to reject, to separate. So we can say it this way, receive into your heart one another as Christ received you into his heart. Now, that, if you're a Christian here today, we rejoice in that part of it, don't we? That, God, that Christ has received us into his heart, we're totally good with that, right? And we oftentimes sort of skip over the fact that I have way more in common with the worst criminal who ever lived than God has in common with me, <laughs> right? And yet God welcomed me, he bridges the massive gap between who he is and who I am, and now Paul says, I want you to... Use that as a paradigm for the way that you view other people in the church and the way that you relate to them and the, the freedom with which you receive them into your heart and into your affections. Christ has welcomed us. There's, there's that vertical gospel again. We, we rejoice in that. It's, it's just the same theme, right? The vertical gospel now impacting the horizontal way that we live in the world and relate to other people. That same application at work here. He asked the question, how can we not welcome anyone that Christ has welcomed? Talk about an awkward uh, situation to be in, you know, someday to, imagine standing at the judgment seat of Christ and, you know, here's somebody that you, you refuse to be, you know, friendly with, nice to, you know, sort of were uh, somehow biased against them, and to see Jesus hug them, and to think, I, I, I think I missed that one, right? Wow, Christ, some of us are going to be really surprised. Christ likes him? Christ likes her? <laughs> and that's the point. Whoever Christ has welcomed, who are we to act like we can't welcome him or her? In fact, one commentator makes the point here that the Greek word for as, okay, so the pivot here is that we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, that that is, that is uh, a causal, okay? So we are to welcome one another because Christ has welcomed us. Do you get that? It's, it's, it's both a paradigm for how we're to do it and also a reason to do it. We do it for Jesus' sake. We do it because, because Christ has welcomed them. That's enough of a cause or reason for me to say, well, then I'm gonna welcome them as well. And then he adds this motivation, for the glory of God. You get that? 
Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And I take that to mean that when God's people are receiving one another across these sort of barriers that in the Roman church they were making a reason to not love one another, when we love across those barriers, that, that God is pleased by that. Indeed, God is glorified by the unity and the affections expressed within the congregation. And at the same time, when we fail to welcome those who God has welcomed, that we are falling short of the glory of God. And what does Romans 3 tell us that is? Sin. Sin. A sectarian mindset, a, a closed heart, a prejudiced perspective against uh, other people that Christ has welcomed is not merely poor form or antisocial behavior. God calls it sin. It is falling short of the glory of God. We are missing an opportunity to bring glory to God, which is what sin is. Now imagine the Roman church. Well, you know, dear God, I'm Mr. Jewish Christian, and I'm wondering why I should do this awkward welcoming of Gentiles. I was raised not to be very fond of the Gentiles. My mom and dad were not fond of the Gentiles. My granddaddy hated the Gentiles. And I'm not really comfortable hanging out with them, much less worshiping with them. And yes, I'm Mr. Gentile. And I agree with Mr. Jewish Christian. Although these Jewish Christians have some pretty weird views on things. And I, I don't feel comfy around them. I'd rather be around my kind of people. People who look at the world the way that I look at it. People who look like I look. So Mr. Apostle, you had better make a really good argument for why I gotta get uncomfy and hang out with people who aren't exactly like me. And that's now what Paul does, okay? He builds the argument. You know, Paul's the master uh, logician. Is that the right logic person? <laughs> I mean, his Romans, you know, they studied Romans for centuries, even at, at I'm, I'm told, like at Yale and Harvard early on. They don't do it anymore, obviously, but they studied Romans for the pure uh, logic that, that Paul employs in making his arguments. And here now, he makes his argument. Why should I welcome somebody different than me that Christ has welcomed? And the first reason he gives is the stunning example of Jesus himself. For I tell you, here's the text, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Now, many of us read these kind of verses, and the, and the shock and awe of it is lost on us. Like, we're, we're accustomed to reading, the, oh, yeah, Jesus became a servant. Okay, right. Now, think about this a moment. Christ became a servant. This is that Greek word, diakonos. Uh, we get our, the office of deacon from this word. It is a word where you are, you are serving somebody else. You are putting their needs ahead of your own. You're viewing them as more significant than yourself. Jesus viewed the circumcised and their needs, spiritually pri primarily, as, as being more significant than his own comfort in heaven. He put their needs ahead of his own. He came as a servant and served the Jews. Circumcised is Old Testament language for the Jewish people. And if you read the Old Testament and the story of the Jewish people, do we find an amazing worthy of the service of the Son of God people group? And the obvious answer is no, we do not. In fact, reading the Old Testament, it's kind of like the movie Groundhog Day. You know, we just came off of Groundhog Day this week, uh, you know, where uh, Bill Murray lives the same day over and over and over again. Reading the Old Testament is kind of like that. It's like, same thing, over and over and over again. And what do we find out? Few bright spots, okay, we'll give you a David, you know, we'll give you a Josiah, uh, you know, throw in a Moses in there. But for the most part, it's the same thing over and over again. It is unfaithfulness, it is sin, it is idolatry, it is failure. That's the story of the Old Testament. 
And yet Christ came to serve the circumcised. And you know, it's not just the Israelites. We can, sometimes we read the Old Testament and we're like, oh, those Israelites, can't believe they would grumble against Moses. You know? And then the McDonald's line goes slow. You know, they're in a desert for 40 years and our fries are cold. And what do we do? We pull it, paid uh, you know, a dollar for this. I can't believe I didn't get warm fries. Now, this is, reading the Old Testament, it, it's a picture into our own soul, isn't it? The same things we see in them, we see so often in us. In fact, even the best of humanity, you can pick your most outstanding moral people, the Mother Teresas of history, are far beneath the rightful service of the Son of God. I mean, he, he deserves to be served, not to be a servant. And yet Christ chose to bridge the gap between his glorious, majestic personhood and the unfaithful human beings that we all are, and to do so with servanthood and love. And most significant in the Roman church is that there was this very significant racial divide in that church. You had, you had you know, the, the, as I mentioned, the Jewish Christians, they have their own tradition, they, you know, they trace their lineage all the way back uh, to, uh, you know, to Jacob and to Abraham, indeed to the patriarchs. And then you have those that would be, fall under the Gentiles. I think we need to realize dear church family, that race is not a biblical concept. It is a social construct. It is not a concept that we find in the Bible. The biblical teaching on race is that there is one race, it is the human race. And that means if you are alive and kicking today, you are a part of the one race in the Bible, the human race. In fact, what, the, what we call race the Bible uses a different word for. It is the Greek word ethne. Of course, what does that sound like? Ethnicities, right? We see it in verse 10. If you, if you take a look at verse 10, it says, rejoice. Now the English says, O Gentiles. But the Greek word is ethne. Rejoice, O ethne. What does it mean? It means nations or people groups, ethnicities. And when you look at the story of the animosity between different ethne in the human story, it is a, it's a I mean, it's, a, it's horrible. Listen to uh, scholar D.A. Carson. He gives a very quick walkthrough of the, the story of human racial history. He says this, the phenomenon of racism is disturbingly rampant Quite apart from the black and white variety engendered in the West by the tragic history of slavery, racism surfaces all over the world. Most Chinese parents would not want their daughter, for instance, to marry a European-American lad. Most Japanese think the Koreans are a step down. Uh, the list is endless. Add the tribal conflicts in Africa, of which the genocide in Rwanda is merely the most notorious recent example. Add the myth of Aryan supremacy that demanded not only the Lebensraum, which was the, uh, the idea that Germany needed more space to grow the, the Aryan nation, precipitating World War II, but issued in the Holocaust. Add the slaughter of a million and a half Armenians at the beginning of the 20th century. Add the Russian slaughter of the Ukrainians and the widespread non-Russian Slavic distrust of the Russians. Add the horrors of apartheid, now abolished in law but a long way from being totally overcome. Add the treatment of the aboriginals by the Australian Caucasians. Add the treatment of Indians in the Americas, North, Central, and South by Canadians, Americans, Brazilians, and the Hispanic countries. The list is endless. No matter where you go in the, in, the, in the human story, in human history, there you find the ethne not uniting, not welcoming each other into each other's hearts with affection, but you have the opposite of that. There is division and animosity and bias and prejudice. 
It staggers the mind how much this is part of the human story. And ironically, we human beings, we are one race. And the differences we have are so very small. Let me give you an example of this. I have, you know, I, I typically have multiple books that I'm reading. I get bored with one, I start another. I've got, you know, a biography here and a this there. And so, uh, praise God for Kindle. I love my, my Kindle. Well, my fun read book that I'm reading right now uh, is a book by Bill Bryson. It's called The Body. And it, uh, it's basically a book that just explores all of these unique features of the human body. Some of them appalling, some of them disgusting, uh, but all of it very interesting. And, uh, you know, for example, if you, if you took your lungs and flattened them out, they would be the size of a tennis court. Who knew, right? Did you know that you grow 23 feet of hair over the course of your life? Although I look around and some of you men got, I think, the short end of that stick. But all kinds of things like that, just really interesting about the human body. Uh, so I was in the chapter on the skin. And Bryson uh, says that of all the things that he learned about the body, he said this was one of his astounding discoveries about the skin. He was with a skin doctor, and apparently they were in some kind of a lab because there was a, uh, a cadaver there. And this doctor uh, opens the, the bin, and there's the body, and he cuts off a little section of skin. And he takes that little slice and he peels back a sliver of skin that is about a millimeter thick, so thin that it was translucent. That's what Bryson says. And the doctor said this. He said, this is where all your skin color is. That's all that race is, a sliver of epidermis a millimeter thick. And yet you look at the story of human history and that millimeter might as well be a mile, right? With the, the division uh, that that has produced. A millimeter of skin determines skin color. Divisions based on skin color are based upon a millimeter of difference between people. But then we look at the gap between God and man. How wide is that gap? That gap is infinite, isn't it? I mean, we, 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 other than bearing the image of God, the sinner has very little in common with God. In fact, we are rebels against God. We are morally bankrupt. We are depraved. We are enemies of God, the Bible says. We're worshiping created things rather than the creator, et cetera, et cetera. There's this massive gap of difference between God and us. And yet, Christ bridges that infinite gap as a servant. And Paul says, now take that infinite gap and apply it to the millimeter of difference that you people have amongst yourselves. We are to welcome and serve brothers and sisters essentially the same as us, like Jesus welcomed we who are infinitely different than him. I think that's a powerful point. The stunning example of Jesus, that's his first reason. Here's the second reason, is uh, why Jesus was Jewish. Here's the text, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Have you ever stopped for a moment and thought, why did Jesus have to be Jewish? I mean, why couldn't he be, uh, you know, he could have come as an Eskimo or come as an Indian or preferably a Dutchman, which I'm personally convinced was the second choice on the list. And the answer to that is because God never promised a Dutchman that from that Dutchman, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Who did he promise that to? He promised that to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, what Paul calls here the patriarchs. In fact, here's the example from Genesis 22. 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your, here it is, and in your offspring, all the ethne, the nations of the earth, will be blessed. So this promise that God gave to Abraham and then repeated to Isaac and repeated to Jacob and other prophecies that were given, uh, including David, right? He had to be the son of David. Not the son of the Dutchman, he had to be the son of David. The suffering servant, Isaiah 53. His incarnation, he had to be Jewish. He had to be a descendant of Abraham in order to be a servant to the circumcised and for all those promises to be, to be true. But there's way more than that. In fact, this is the part of this that was missed for all the centuries by the Jews. And that is that the mission of Jesus was much greater than simply the descendants of Abraham. Notice what he says next. And in order that the Gentiles, what? The Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That Jesus' mission isn't simply to save the Jews. Jesus' mission is to save the ethne, the nations of the earth. And, and then Paul, and I don't have time for this, but I'm just gonna note that he quotes from four Old Testament passages in which, in every case, it has not the Jews offering praise to God, but the Gentiles offering praise to God. And the words that are applied to Gentiles in their relationship to God, praise twice, sing, rejoice, extol, and hope. The Jewish people had largely missed this aspect of Jesus' mission. It makes me think of the, remember the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and was it her daughter maybe that was sick? I can't remember right now. And, and she said, will you heal my daughter? And, and Jesus says, no, I, 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 you know, I've not come to, uh, to the nations but to, but to the people. And she says, but don't the dogs eat the crumbs? Remember that line? And he said, I have not seen this kind of faith anywhere. Go home, your daughter is healed. And we see in that, it's a little glimpse of Jesus' heart beyond the Jewish people, but to all the ethne. In fact, Matthew 21, Jesus says this to the, to the Jews, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus, who are you talking about there? Like I thought it was just the patriarchs and those that are descended from the patriarchs. Well, look at what happens in the story. You read through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, inaugurating the age of the church. They go out, they begin preaching. There's people, Jewish people from all over uh, that have gathered there for the day of Pentecost. They receive Christ as their savior. So at that point, the, the church is a Jewish church. But then you get to chapter eight. And in chapter eight, Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, unless I'm mistaken, Ethiopia back then was generally located the same place that Ethiopia is located today, right? Right there in Africa. In other words, that was a dark-skinned man. That was an African man. Think of it, the first non-Jewish believer in the gospel was an African. Acts 10, Cornelius. And Peter with the vision of the, the sheet coming down and you know, him saying, I don't eat the unclean. And God saying, don't call unclean what I call clean. And Peter realizing that he wanted to, God wanted him to share the gospel with Cornelius and he does. And then he goes back to Jerusalem and he gives the report to the, to the apostles and they're astounded that he, the gospel has come even, they say it this way, even to the Gentiles. Like that was kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, even them, I guess. No, it was, they, their vision was too small. Their vision was just their people, their kind of people. And God's vision was for the ethne. And then you see Paul become the apostle to the Gentiles. And the gospel goes forth in Asia Minor and has been going forth. And by the way, that includes 
us here today in Indiana. You know, don't read the story like you're the insider. Unless you are Jewish, you are an outsider. That God has graciously allowed to become an insider. As he says in chapter 11, we are the, the branch grafted into the tree. This is the mercy of God to the ethne. So that we look at this and we realize that we are the fulfillment of that little clause that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Who was in view there? He was thinking about you and me, Dutchman Steve DeWitt, Scottish whoever you are, Brazilian whoever you are, Chinese whoever you are. The billions represented by the ethne who are not descendants of Abraham so that we as well might be for the praise of his glory and offer praise to him. So if you're like, I wish I was in the Bible somewhere, you know what, you're in the Bible right there. That's a verse about you and a verse about me. Now, I'm gonna pause, because I have three implications for our church. If you've tracked with me with the point that Paul is making here, this has profound implications for us as a congregation. Here's the first one. The more racialized our world becomes, the greater the opportunity for the church. The more racialized our world becomes, the greater the opportunity for the church. Why is Paul writing the letter of Romans? You can make the argument he's not trying to teach them about the doctrine of election primarily, or help to understand the sovereign love of God, or some of these other things. You can make the argument the reason he wrote the letter was that he heard about the church not getting along. And he realized there in Rome, that church was missing out on an incredible gospel opportunity because they were allowing the religious and racial divides to separate them. He writes Romans to bring them together. There they were, dividing along the lines. Imagine the gatherings, you know, the Jewish Christians over sitting over here, the Gentile Christians sitting over here. You know, at the, at the potluck after the service, uh, you know, the Jewish Christians grouping up over here and eating their food that they were comfortable with, and the Romans at their potluck section over here eating the things that they're welcome or they're comfortable with. In the prayer gatherings, the Jewish Christians kind of grouping over here, praying about the things that Jewish Christians pray about. The Roman Christians over here grouping together, praying about the things the Gentiles pray about. They were technically one church, but they were not receiving one another into their hearts like Christ had received them. And the net effect of that was they were missing an opportunity to display to the racialized Rome of the day the difference that Jesus Christ makes in bringing people together. In fact, you look at Romans 14, and not only were they divided, they were condescending to each other, they were argumentative with each other. They were self-righteous about their own position on these things. In other words, they were functionally acting like all the unbelievers there in the city of Rome. Why would any unbeliever in Rome get, come to their assembly and see the division and the attitudes and the rancor and think to himself, you know, I need Jesus Christ as my savior. There might be something to this. There was too much division for that to happen. They were missing a powerful opportunity. And I wonder if we are missing a powerful opportunity in our day. You know, as a church, we're trying not to. I mean, if you know the story of our church, especially the last five years, we've been, you know, we're trying not to miss that opportunity. As we, as, as we, as we stand here today, sit here today, we have a Chinese Mandarin congregation trying to share the gospel in the comfortable mother tongue of those with, uh, of Chinese descent. We have a campus in downtown Gary, which is uh, predominantly African-American, but is, is uh, ministering in the, in the racial context of that community. Uh, we have ambitions to minister to other languages and people groups 
in Northwest Indiana. Why are we doing that? Romans 15. Romans 15 is why we're doing that. We're doing it, it says, for the glory of God. When we welcome across those barriers, God is glorified. When we don't do that, God is not glorified. We are doing it for God's glory. We are doing it for Christ's gospel. We're trying to follow Christ's example and we wanna do it for Jesus' sake. To welcome, for Jesus' sake, people into our hearts for the glory of God. Romans 15, seven. But this requires a culture in our congregation. I mean, I can be up here flapping my gums all day on this. The culture of the church is dependent upon the attitudes and the actions of the people in the congregation. In other words, this is you, my friends. A culture of welcoming people who are different, recognizing that Christ welcomed me infinitely different than him. To welcome here in Northwest Indiana, I mean this incredibly diverse community that we live in here, people with different traditions, people with different perspectives, people with different language, people with different looks, and indeed a different millimeter right here. Not diverse in the essential doctrines. We've pounded that point home as well. But with these other non-essential things, can you welcome those who Christ welcomes? If I could just be specific, if your politics keep you from accepting a true Christian politically different than you, your politics are your God. If your skin color keeps you from accepting a uh, Christian ethnically different than you, your ethnicity is your identity, not Jesus. If your preferences keep you from accepting a Christian preferentially different than you, your preferences are an idol in your life. In fact, dare I say it, if your fill in the blank keeps you from accepting someone Christ has accepted, your fill in the blank is your idol and your identity. And you get a bunch of people in our church who are idolizing something, you know, worshiping something other than Jesus, and we are not going to have a culture here of welcoming those that Christ has welcomed. We want to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. And the kicker, I think, with this, and part of my burden today, is that, friends, you realize in the racial, I mean, it, our country is more racialized right now, I feel, in, in some ways, I didn't live, you know, I was born in the 60s, but I didn't live in the 60s. Uh, maybe in my lifetime. I mean, it's just a powder keg all the time. And the world doesn't have an answer for this. But the church has an answer. Let's not blow it, right? Let's not blow the opportunity. The more the world gets racialized, the better the answer that Jesus provides becomes. And this requires each of us to conduct ourselves in a welcoming manner and to collectively have a culture that looks like Romans 15 verse seven. Because the gospel is the only power that brings the ethnicities together. Andy Nasali, Dr. Andy Nasali, he wrote this, this is the most fundamental reason why programs of diversity training usually backfire in their attempt to foster mutual respect among the ethnic groups. They focus major attention on what is comparatively minor, maybe the millimeter of skin for example, and virtually no attention on what is infinitely, gloriously major, our common unique standing among all creation as persons created in the image of God. And that's why these world, the world's ideas are not going to bring the unity of the ethne. Which leads to implication number two, is that God is glorified in and when ethnic diversity within the church 
is lovingly unified. God is glorified when that happens. How do we know this? Here's how we know it. We have a picture of what heaven's gonna be like. Here's Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is heaven like in God's eyes? Heaven is not monochromatic. Heaven is diversity in unity and we see that massive redeemed choir And if you're a Christian, this is your future. They're offering praise to the Lamb. And there are people with every kind of skin color, all these different languages, living in different parts of the world. And God delights in the diversity of it. Especially when it is unified around the Lamb and offering praise to God. And I would say to you, this is not simply the end game. This is a paradigm of what we should aspire to right now. That God delights in diversity, in unity. He is, by the way, a triunity. And if I had more time, I would talk to you about why I think the diverse uh, ethne in unity is actually intended by God to be a reflection of the, the Trinity. And if I had just another moment, I would say something about when, when we don't unify with people that Christ accepts, it is a blasphemy because it is essentially reflecting Jesus having bias against the Father or the Holy Spirit being prejudiced against the Son. Like that's just a blasphemy. That is not Trinitarian theology. If I had more time, I'd get into that. But I don't. (laughs) But just to give a thought for you to think about, that in the world, race divides and fractures, but in Christ, we are united and we will be forever. And we just need to be on board with that goal. Leading to the question of how. How do we do it? And the way that we do it is that we love God's image everywhere we find it. We love God's image everywhere we find it. Humanity focuses on the millimeter of epidermis and divides over that. But we see something way more important and much deeper than the millimeter of epidermis. What do we see? We see a person made in the image of God. And it doesn't matter if that person is in the womb or in the nursing home. That image bearing grants inherent worth and value to that image. And we are called to love it wherever we find it. To serve it wherever we find it. And, you know, this last year I've read so many books on race and justice and all these themes that have just been so dominant this last year. But to my eye, where are all these worldly philosophies taking us? Into deeper divides and to more animosity and a more cancel culture. In other words, it's taking us further and further apart. So that the opposite of racism is not anti-racism or non-racism. The opposite of racism is love. Love. So any philosophy that you're reading, any book, I don't care who wrote it, that doesn't lead to love, you can know it is not a Christian solution. If it leads you to have animosity towards people that, you know, believe the way you used to believe, that is not love. Christianity is about love and love driving out hate. A love that not only loves those who disagree with us and those who are different than us, but indeed even loves our enemies. Somebody famous said that. Now, finally, I just want to tell you a quick story, okay? Many of you are probably familiar with the, the name Corey Tinboom. If you don't know the story of Corey Tinboom, you should. Uh, her famous book, The Hiding Place, 
Uh, she was one of uh, many, uh, back to the Dutch, sorry, but back to the Dutch who in, during World War II, they, would, they were hiding Jews to keep them from, you know, going to the concentration camps, uh, save them from, from death. And her family was hiding Jews in their in the wall and the attic. And well, eventually they got found out. And so Corey Timboom and her family were sent to uh, Ravensbrook concentration camp. And there at that concentration camp, her sister died, her dad died, and she was released because of a clerical error 10 days before all the other women in her little group were all uh, gassed to death in the gas chambers. And after that all happened, she wrote the book, The Hiding Place, and became kind of world famous, spoke around the world uh, on the subject of forgiveness. Well, she tells the story that one night, it was like two years after the end of World War II, that she was in Germany and she was speaking on the subject of forgiveness, I think in a church. And after the service, she went down and was kind of mixing and mingling and all of a sudden she saw this guy and she instantly remembered him. He had been a guard, a brutal guard, in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. And you know, she describes the feelings that she had literally remembering when she was forced to walk naked in front of him as part of what was going on there. He did not recognize her. She recognized him. This man came up to her and extended his hand for a handshake and said, you mentioned Ravensbrook. I was a guard there, he said. But since then, I have become a Christian. And I know God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. Froheim, will you forgive me? And Corey tells the story how in that moment, she just, like every part of her just was filled with the emotion that you would have. Here's a man that contributed to the death of his dad and sister and all the terrible things. She did not want to forgive him. She prayed, dear Jesus, help me. And she forced her hand into his hand. And here's now her own words. She said, and so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. That's the power of the gospel, to bring people together, even former enemies, and to turn hate into love. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's do that, church.